This is The Guardian. I'm Grace Dent and this is Comfort Eating from The Guardian. A podcast where we pay homage to the lesser celebrated foods in life. Because even as a restaurant critic, I believe the food that matters most is often that snack you cobble together when you're curled upon the sofa. Each week, I ask my guest to lift the lid on what comfort foods have seen them through their lives. Because you can tell a lot about a person from what they eat behind closed doors. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice. New research by EY has revealed... The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY. Hello, friends. You join me, as ever, in my kitchen, where today I'm tucking in to a Hartley's jelly pot like a fully grown adult, as is my want. I do love jelly. So convenient. It's a bit of a grey day here in London, admittedly, but do you know what's going to cheer me up? I have got none other than Mallory Blackman coming over to chat about life and literature and, of course, lunch. For more than three decades, Mallory's books have helped shape British culture. If you went to school in the 90s or the noughties, chances are you saw rows of them in the library. After all, there's over 70 of them. Her best-selling, Noughts and Crosses, happens to be Stormzy's favourite book and they've become friends, so much so that Mallory stars in his new video. Her writing has won countless awards. It's been adapted for the screen. And in 2013, Mallory was made children's laureate. I can't imagine Mallory actually has time to cook. So I'm curious as to what she eats when the lights are low and the door is double locked. But first, a little bit more of this. That's absolute perfection. Mallory Blackman, welcome to Comfort Eating. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank Thank you for inviting me on. Thank you for walking into the chaos of my house. (laughs) No, it's lovely. (laughs) I I must admit, I was perusing your your, um, bookshelves. I always do that. I'm terrible. I love seeing what people are reading, what they're into. Okay. (laughs) What have you learned about me from my bookshelves? Well, I I must admit, I hadn't come across the book book of yours, um, How to come off twitter and i yeah. thought oh i'll have to get that one. <laughs> so <laughs> well what i will say is i wrote that book quite a long time ago and i'm still on twitter so as, 
okay. As a self-help guide, mm. I, I think it's somewhat lacking. <laughs> This is the part of the show where I find out what it is that you eat when the curtains are drawn, you're home alone, no one's looking. What have you brought for me today? It's 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 nestling under a tea towel it at the is. moment. I've just actually noticed it all the time I've been chatting. There's a tea towel. It's almost like you're going to do a magic trick or something. A big reveal. A big reveal. <laughs> are you ready? I'm so ready. <laughs> okay, it is... It's a warm plate it wrapped is. in tin foil. And I'm going I'll, in. I'll tell you what it is. It Go is on. a bacon and banana butty. And the banana. <laughs> I love the face, which is usually the reaction I get every time I tell someone what my favourite thing is. But it is a bacon and banana butty, and you grill the banana. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Do you. Um... When anybody comes to your house for food, do they ever come again? Uh, I don't serve them this. I don't serve them this. This, I have never found, apart from my hubby, my hubby and I love these. Even my daughter thinks they're a bit minging, but I love them. Right. So, it's (laughs) in, it's it's in, (laughs) it's in two pieces of, you know, just normal bread. It's brown bread. Does it need to be brown bread? No, it can be brown or white. It can be brown toasty. or white. It's, yeah. and, and you've and and it's it's quite moist. It's quite like there's butter in there. Is there well, butter? you don't have to put butter because when you grill the banana, it gets quite soft and spreadable. But you can put butter if you want to. Now but, you'll notice yeah. you'll notice I'm talking a lot. That's because I'm that <laughs> then I'm hoping somewhere along the way I don't have to eat it. <laughs> oh, your expression was a picture. I should have taken a photograph of that. Right. <laughs> That was a thumbs up. (laughs) That was, I love, she just gave her own recipe a thumbs up, like, damn, damn, I'm good. (laughs) I'm going in. Maybe it's an acquired taste. You're not feeling it, are you? I mean, (laughs) right. The, the level of devilment in your face. The thing is, often when you get these weird and wonderful concoctions, the beauty is that these two things transform together to make something that don't taste as they mm. should. But that is squashy banana with crispy bacon. bacon. Yeah, that's right. How? <laughs> how? How did this come about? You know what? I don't know. I think it's something my maybe something I, I something I remember eating as a kid, and I think um, you know that um, in sort of typical West Indian household, we'd have plantain. Yeah, and plantain is something that you very much you have to you have to cook it. It looks like a, a huge banana, mm-hmm. um, but you have you you slice it up and you can fry it or or, or grill it or put it in the oven or whatever. It's usually fried, um, but it gives a sort of sweet. It's a sort of it's a sweet. It gives a sweetness to savoury dishes, yes. so you can serve it with. Um, if you're having roast chicken or you're having roast lamb or something, that plantain just adds that a, a sort of a, a bit of sweetness to the yeah. meal. Yeah, and so you know, but when plantain isn't available, then we just sort of grill bananas. So I I admire you taking a second bite. But the thing is, now that you've put it like that, that's totally logical and. There's something about 
the thick, stodgy carb mm. with the bread, with the very crisp bacon, that it goes from being repulsive to actually <laughs> kind of compelling within about two bites. Well, I, I kind of skipped over the repulsive bit, yeah. but I just think it's really nice. And it's mm. sort of, a, it's my comfort eat, sort of, a, you know, and my hubby goes, oh, do you fancy all the bees? Because we call it like burnt bread, banana and bacon. Um, so, and then he'll come make me a toasted sarni. So... You were born in Clapham, South London, on the 8th of February, 1962. Your parents, Ruby and Joe, they moved to Britain from Barbados as part of the Windrush generation. You're the middle of five children. What do you remember of family life when you were a little girl? I think it was a typical childhood, basically. I had... Um... It was a big family, so we did. We played lots of games together. We would go to the park together. We'd go bike riding together. And I remember Sunday dinner, and sort of we'd have all around the table, and it would be roast lamb or roast chicken, and it'd be yeah. rice and peas and salad, lots of salad, and lots of music and laughter. We always had music on, whether it was the radio or we'd be playing Motown records on a big gramophone yeah. or Fats Domino or, you know, so, or Calypso. So, you know, the Mighty Sparrow and so on. There were times where, you know, sometimes I would just retreat and want to retreat with the book mm. and into my own head. And because there was always something going on. And, and part of me loved that, but part of me always relished the silences that would come. Yeah. And that's why I loved reading because I could just retreat into a book. So I, I kind of feel I had the best of both worlds in that. You were the middle of five siblings. Yes. Your two older siblings, Wendy and Vincent, spent time growing up in Barbados together. And then your younger brothers, James and John, twins. So both pairs have this special kinship. Mm. And you've said in the past, sometimes you felt like the odd one out. You've got these two here and yeah. these two here. Yeah. In what? way was your sense of solitude do you think that was formative for becoming a writer it was part of it because I think it's typical middle child syndrome I think yeah. any middle child you speak to is going to have those moments of they're not the youngest and they're not the oldest so kind of where do they quite fit and with me it was very much retreating into books mm. and I and, it, and I love books anyway so it wasn't a hardship mm. there were moments of isolation but I grew to like my own and then love my own company. And it yeah. stood me in good stead for becoming a writer because you absolutely have to like your own company to be a writer because yeah. a lot of it is so solitary and a lot of it is losing yourself in the world that you're creating. Um, and I, to the extent that when I'm working, my husband and daughter are very careful about when they interrupt me because oh. yeah, because it's kind of like my, my, at, at there's certain points when my hubby says I'm not gonna. I said, do you want? He calls up the stairs. So I work in my attic. He goes, do you want a cup of tea or whatever? But then he very rarely comes up and interrupts me because I get very kind of testy. You've spoken about how your father was keen that we had to speak proper English every time we spoke a Bajan idiom. He'd say. Don't say that. Speak the Queen's English. How much did you get to explore your Barbadian heritage when you were little? Not as much as I would have liked. And he, I can understand why he said that. 
and it was very much about to survive in this country mm. you have to speak the same if or better than people in this country and every time I used a Bajan phrase or mm. I you know Bajan idiom I'd get told off for it was food a way to understand your heritage then if your dad's taken away your language and you mm. love language yes, but he's yeah. taking away so, he's taking away <laughs> that some language yeah, yeah. what about food did you food was different food was very much about celebrating our Bajan heritage and mm. by having Bajan food but it was also about exploring other food of other parts of the world so for, for example he'd come home with Chinese takeaways or sometimes Indian takeaways yeah. so that was the first time we got to experience those and if we were going somewhere, we'd kind of, we'd um, he'd get a takeaway, but we would then take it with us. So we, and it took me a while to realise it was because black families weren't welcomed into mm. cafes and restaurants at the time. Yeah. So it was always takeaways. Did your parents cook at home, like food from where they were from? Yeah, my mum did, definitely. My mum was the one who did the majority of the cooking. But, as, you know, she had a full-time job, so it wasn't like she was going to come home and then spend four hours in the kitchen. It was She wanted to do fast stuff, apart from Sundays. Sundays would be a huge spread. So we'd have things like spaghetti bolognese and we'd have um, mini burgers and things. And, yeah. Um, and then we had something called sauce, which is um, pickled pork belly. And you you put it with lots of parsley and lemon juice and onion, really chopped up fine, sort of grated. And then you leave it for a few hours and it's sort of like a pickled but it was it was delicious it was lovely right, and that's called sauce and that's a hang bajan on. dish talk me through sauce again right okay you take pork belly yeah you take pork belly and you roast that roast it and then you take about two three lemons two onions grated so it's really really fine so it's just mush and chop up some parsley and salt and pepper so that's the basis for the liquid that you're going to pickle the pork in and chop up the pork belly so that um, it's kind of diced and put that in this kind of mixture and then just pickle it for, well, for as long as you like. But I mean, you have to leave it for a good few hours before you can eat it. And it is delicious. You remember your young childhood as being really happy. When you were 13, you found a note at home addressed to your mother from your father informing her that he had gone. Yeah. So what happens then with your family? Well, um, yeah, I found this note and it's saying he was leaving. And then, and so I kind of put the note back on the mirror where <laughs> I found it. And then the next day, the bailiffs came and chucked us out the house and uh, we were effectively homeless. And so, you know, we've stayed with my aunt for a few days and then uh, with my mum going to the council every day saying we've got nowhere to live. And then they put us in a homeless shelter, which we were in for months, which had to be one of the worst periods of my life. And, you know, my mum, bless her, she... She taught me true resilience because she is the one who kept the family together. She's the one. They provided us with a couple of paraffin heaters for heat and that's what we had to, and that's all we had. But I remember, you know, she couldn't afford to go to the laundrette so she would wash things in the bathtub. So I was terrified of being around anyone in case, because I could smell the mildew on my clothes because especially in winter, it was very hard to dry things. 
I was terrified. I was I either smelled of my clothes would smell of paraffin or they'd smell of mildew. So I would keep myself kind of apart from my friends. And every lunchtime, I disappear into the library or into a piano practice room, a music room, just because I didn't want to be around people because I was terrified that I I would smell weird. We talk about poverty a lot, mm. you know, in today's society, and we kind of throw the word around a lot. But you have actually completely known poverty like oh God, absolutely yeah. on the bones mm. of existence well exactly you and that's, never... that's why i get cross when i hear mp say well oh if you're poor it's because you're not working hard enough mm. or if you're poor then you're not doing poorness right um which just makes me so cross well how did you not starve we i mean what were you eating that's because that's thanks to my mum i mean basically what we lived on for a long while for months was what my mum called fries and it wasn't it wasn't like you know chips Mm. basically it was flour and sugar and water and then you fry them and bacon that's what we lived on fries and bacon and that's because that's all my mum that could afford because she had no money so So every day she was going out trying to find a job but in the meantime the little money that she was getting to help her that's all she could afford I look back on that and it and it had such an influence on the way I am now Mm. so for example I don't like to see an empty fridge and I have this thing about an empty fridge and so our fridge is is usually quite well stocked and I have a thing about always paying my rent and always paying my bills, even if I don't eat, because no one's ever going to come and chuck me out of my house again and that Mm. sort of thing. So there's certain behaviours I have now, which border on kind of compulsive, which I absolutely know where they stemmed from. And it was kind of, it is, when you have nothing and then you have something, you, there's always this thing of, it's, you know how easy it is to go back to having nothing at 18, you moved to Huddersfield to study business studies. And it was while you're at university, you rushed to hospital, you've got abdominal pain, which is later diagnosed as sickle cell disease. Yeah. So you're in bed in the hospital and you overhear a doctor and a nurse talking about you, saying that you wouldn't live past 30. Yeah, that's right. Your life has been a bit of a roller coaster anyway. How does yeah. this change now? Yeah, I mean that. I mean that. That's massive. Well, it, I mean, well, it was. Oh my right. god! You know, it was like suddenly getting a sell by date, and it was sort of or used by date. It was kind of like that, the, hearing this doctor say she's not going to live past thirty. Did you tell anybody that day? Did you? No, no. no. So, you, so you have this piece of news. Who was I going to tell? I was in Huddersfield. My family were back in London. It was so appallingly shocking. And I was 18 and at the time 30, you know, before that 30 was so far away and then suddenly 30 was like, it could have been, it felt like 30 was just knocking on the door. And I thought, oh my God, I'm not going to see my my middle years. I'm not going to live to middle age. I believed it for years. Some people would react to that by completely going off the rails, partying, drinking, mm. whatever, self-destructive. Mm. But you, you become very determined to just find financial independence. Yes, yeah. And But that's not to say I went, I went clubbing and I did, you know, yeah, I did you, the other you things. you did those things, yeah. you had fun. But 
partly because of your dad leaving, I suppose, but also the diagnosis. And you've written, if I was going to die young, I wanted to earn enough to live life the way I wanted. Yeah, absolutely. So you didn't go back to uni. You pursue a career in computing. Yeah. By 21, you've got yourself a two-bedroom flat. You buy a flat. Yeah, yeah. In the days when you could. I mean, I bought my first flat in Broccoli for £32,000. And I felt it was mine and, you know, I could decorate it the way I wanted. And I was so ambitious and I was going to, I started off as a kind of glorified filing clerk, but then I took evening classes to do computer science. And then I worked my way up to sort of junior programmer, then systems programmer, then project manager and so on. And I was all about the money. It was about kind of yeah. doing as much overtime or whatever so that I could, and and I got the chance to travel abroad. Um, so I visited places like, you know, Norway and America, awful work. But it was all about the money. I just thought, well, if I'm going to die before I'm 30, I want to make money so I can live the life I want to live. Yeah. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you were 14, you were living in, you know, hostels and mm. and you didn't have any space and you didn't have... You, had a, you, you couldn't really cook. No, no. And now you've got your own kitchen. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, just having a cooker and a fridge, I mean, it was... It sounds it sounds very mundane, but when you have that and it's yours, I mean, yeah. a lot of people just take it for granted. But when you're when you've been without it, you you do appreciate it when you've got it. So if I came round your flat when I was twenty one and you were twenty one, what are we having for dinner? I am fond of lamb, so it'd be like lamb kebabs or roast lamb or you know roast potatoes or lamb with rice and lots so of you salad. Were, and you were lots cooking of properly when oh, you yeah. you were twenty one. You were yeah. cooking proper food. Oh gosh, yeah, yeah. Or you know it was that or takeaways. You know, come home with some food or whatever. I was tired, but. I mean, I'm a rubbish cook. I have to tell you, I'm really bad at cooking. But I, I love the fact that I could make my own stuff and I could, you know, choose and decide this is what I'm going to have today. Or I'm going to have a sandwich today, or I'm going to have, I'm going to have kind of a steak today, or I'm going to have whatever. When you were a little girl, your dad kind of encouraged you to feel that as a black person, you can't go into restaurants, and maybe that this isn't a space for you. But now you've got money and you're mm. older. Do you start going to restaurants? 
his thing was this is the way it is we're, yeah. we're not welcoming these restaurants so yeah. we can't eat we, you know we, we, they just would say don't we have no tables and we couldn't sit, sit down and eat in restaurants in this country in the sort of 60s early 70s but now I had money mm. and then I started going places and it, and I was very lucky because in my first job there was it was quite a young workforce. They were sort of recent graduates, yeah. so we would all go out for meals to different Where restaurants and different places. There was a really, really lovely Turkish restaurant in Derby Street in the West End, and that was my f- introduction to Turkish food. Mm. Um, and it's not just things like you know, sort of doner kebabs and things, but proper shish kebabs yeah. and, and whatever, and b- lovely salads. And this we- was with your work crowd, yeah. And this was with the work crowd, and then it was just kind of and another place that was really popular with everybody where I worked, from the kind of the manager downwards, was this place called Colombo's, and it was basically it so it was like a greasy spoon. It was. Um, they served chips and peas and beans and everything and yeah. it was sausages and whatever, but it was really well done and the place was always stout out. It was just, you, you most of the time at a lunchtime you had a queue to get in and they had a waitress who, if you went there twice she and you had the same thing, she knew what your order was. Yeah. So as soon as you arrived, she'd, she'd, she'd look at me and say, sausage, chips and beans. I say, thank you. Yeah. And she'd look at my hubby and it'd be sausage, chips and peas. And it was like, yeah, thanks. And she just memorised everybody's order. And it, I don't know how she did it, but it was, it, was a rena- it was renowned. It was a wonderful place to eat. So you're out and about in the West End, eating out with your colleagues and somewhere along the way, you meet Neil, who is a colleague, and I quote, you said this, was built like a brick outhouse. <laughs> yeah, well, he was. <laughs> and he had a wicked sense of humour. He did, Which yeah. is, that's the thing. Isn't it just, isn't it just? Yeah. I can't resist men who've got, who make me laugh. Um, well, life is very long. Yeah. And uh, after you've got over the initial attraction, mm. it's just laughing. It really, is. Isn't it is. It? You've got, you've got, I, I think you have to like the person you're with as well as love them. And I really like him. And I always have done. And he's so considerate. And, and I mean, he used to be university karate champion and he used to play rugby. So oh, hang he on, was... I fancy him now. <laughs> So he was, he was, he was fit. He was fit. Um, Hang you on. Know. You, tell me, you're at, you're at work. Mm. Tell me when you first see Neil. I, when I first saw him, to be honest, it was kind of like, oh, he's he's reasonable looking, but it was kind of like there was not an instant attraction per se because it was like he was just fun to be around, and he was. I wouldn't say that I was smitten the, the moment I looked at him. He was someone who very much kind of. Oh, isn't he nice? And, not, I, and and it was kind of like liking his company and wanting to be in his company. And and then he takes you out for food? Yeah, we, 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 but we'd all go out as a group. But what would happen as well, though, is I'd say, you know, sometimes when people were going out, they say, I'm going out to the fish and chip shop. Does anyone want fish and chips? And Neil would do that. And he'd say, oh, I'm going to the fish and chip shop. Does anyone want fish and chips? And then... And I'd say, no, I fancy a kebab from Derby Street or something. And he'd say, well, I'll get it for you, even though the place in Derby Street was kind of the opposite direction to where he was going. Yeah. And so he would do that. And then, and I thought, oh, that's really kind of you. Thank you. But then one time another colleague turned around and said, you can wrap that man around your little finger. <laughs> and I thought, but he's just being nice. But then it was kind of dawned on me that actually I was the only one he, he would do that for. I think the question I'm trying to ask is, how did you end up getting off with him? Uh, well, <laughs> well, the way that worked was he was dropping all kinds of hints that I wasn't picking up uh, that were kind of going whoosh straight over my head. And then um, 
one time we were in the terminal room, we were both working late and it was just the two of us. And I got stuck on whatever. So I asked him how to do do this. And so he, he was helping me with this. And then I looked at him and he looked at me and then he moved in slowly for a kiss. And the thing is, he did it slowly so that if I wasn't interested, I could back off and he would have backed right <laughs> off because he's not one of those, you know, jerks who kind of feels they have to press yeah. their attentions. But he kind of came in for a kiss and I thought, oh my God, is this man going to kiss me? And I thought, oh, he is. And then it was really nice and I thought, oh, that's lovely. And then we got caught because somebody else walked into the terminal room, which was mortifying i just thought i'm going home i'm going home and then um he caught up with me and said well it's a shame that the person walked in when they did and i thought it was just as well they did and then he said do you fancy having a meal sometime or going to the cinema and i said yeah yeah okay and that's that's when it clicked that this guy wanted to go out on a date with me because if he hadn't kissed me we still wouldn't be together because i just was not picking up on all these clues he was leaving that shows you know, but there you so go. he didn't actually realise that he was trying to snog you until he was right up, yeah. right like <laughs> it totally that far. Exactly, exactly. I mean, God. So, um, did he take you for a curry? That was one of our things. We went. We there used to be a curry place in Rupert Street that we used to go to. That was lovely, you know. And I'd have my chicken korma and my onion bhajis to start. Was he an easy person to share? Indian food with as in you could put an order in and do sherry sherry yes, things exactly he's exactly. not one of those that just wants the thing for himself oh no 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 but yeah. do you want to try some of mine and I'll try some of yours yeah. and visits to the theatre or visits to the cinema and a, and a meal and so on so and that was when I was 19 and he was 24 and we're still together that is a lot of dinners out <laughs> We've talked for so long about your childhood and your your life and what you've eaten and restaurants and we've had such a good laugh and we have not spoken at all about you becoming a writer. <laughs> and you're such a well-known, prolific, loved, adored writer. You're one of Britain's most beloved authors. You've written over 70 books. Yes, yeah. You started writing in your spare time and it took 82 rejection letters before a publisher agreed to publish your work. What kept driving you when others would probably have given up? That's what I wanted to do. It was it was for eight or nine different books, the 82 rejection letters, and it was just letter after letter after letter saying no. Mm. Around about the 60th rejection letter, a few of the editors started telling me why they had said no. So I thought, oh, maybe I'm improving because if they've taken the time to tell me why they were turning my book down, then maybe they saw something in the writing. It was just a story that wasn't right for them. But I'm not going to lie, around about my 70th rejection letter, I did begin to wonder if maybe I was wasting my time and maybe writing wasn't for me. But it was one of those things when I started writing, I thought, I love this. I really want to do, I want to do this for the rest of my life. I love this. And at that time, I had spoken to someone who was an expert in sickle cell disorder, who said that it was very unlikely I would die before my 30th birthday. Mm. And there were people with sickle cell who lived into their 60s and 70s. And I shouldn't believe that man. But and, and even though I was told that, there was still a part of me at the back of my mind thinking, well, what if he's right? What if this doctor was right? 
So when I started writing and I knew that's what I wanted to do, as far as I was concerned, I only had a few years left, so I wasn't going to give up. Even though I came close and I thought, no, keep going, keep going, just keep going. Because I thought, I don't want to be on my deathbed thinking, if only I'd had the guts to try, you know. And I, I, I thought, I don't mind if I've given it a really good try and I've failed, but I would hate it if I if I was on my deathbed thinking, oh, I really wish I'd had the guts to try. So that's what kept me going. I thought, I'm going to do this. I want to do this. I want to be a writer. 82 different letters arrived telling you no. Yeah. And then one day, the 83rd (laughs) letter arrived and you open it up. So how do you celebrate that? Oh, I screwed my head off and I opened it and they said, Dear Mallory Blackman, we would love to publish your story. And I just went, ah! And I just screamed. <laughs> and I was kind of like, oh my God, oh my God. And I was, it was one of the happiest days of my life. It was kind of like someone had finally said yes and I was going to be a published author. And then the rest of the letter was like, can you come in and so we can discuss it because it does need some work, blah, blah, blah. But all of that was kind of, yeah, exactly. That was like, oh yeah, that's fine, that's fine. The fact that they had seen something in it. And and the funny thing is, before that, all the books I'd had rejection letters for were picture books for early readers. And the book that finally got accepted was a book of short stories for teenagers. Okay. And I was so thrilled and I thought, right, nothing's going to stop me now. And my, my hubby and I made the decision that I would give up my job for a year Mm. and see if I could make a go of writing. But if at the end of the year I hadn't or there was not enough money coming in, I'd have to go back to computing because there's no way my hubby could pay all the bills by himself, you know, and I wouldn't want him to either. This was 1990. Yeah. You give yourself a year. Spoiler alert. It all went. (laughs) Okay, clearly those 12 months went very well because you've been publishing books ever since. In 2008, you were awarded an OBE. Yes, yeah. For services to children's literature. Mm. Why did you end up writing books predominantly for younger people? I think it's because I love the the depth and the breadth and the imagination that children's books contained. And I love the fact that I could write a science fiction this year and then I could write a fantasy that year and then I could write a horror story. Mm. And I could do all of that without having to change my name to have a pseudonym. And I just love, as I said, the depth and the breadth of imagination in children's books and books for young adults. So I thought that would that would really suit me. Well, you were a little girl that seemed to have partly lived in the library. Do you think you were writing the books that you wished that you'd been able to get hold of? Absolutely, because I, I read thousands and thousands and thousands of books over the years when I was a, a child and a teenager and not a single one of them featured a black child like me. Mm. Uh, I never saw myself in the world of literature and believe me, I knew I wasn't seeing myself. I felt very invisible. I felt like in a way what that was saying to me was your life is not worth documenting. Your life mm. is not worth communicating because mm. there was there were no books that featured a child like me or children like me so I would kind of read books and kind of think myself into them but it wasn't the same mm. I think there is something in children being able to read about other children who do not look like them or do not yeah. live lives like them 
because then it improves empathy and understanding with others mm. who are not exactly like you or haven't been brought up in the same way. Mm. I grew up, uh, every book I read, the, the protagonists or the main characters were white. Mm. And so I felt I knew an awful lot of, about how white people live mm. in a way that white people had no clue about how black people live because they'd never been exposed to it in the same way in literature and in films and in TV when I was growing up. That's part of the reason I wanted to write it, and especially for children, because I wanted... There's such a dearth of books that featured black children that I kind of wanted to write for the child in myself and all the books I'd love to have read as a child and all those mysteries and thrillers and whodunits and adventure stories and so on that featured black protagonists that had nothing to do with race, just happened to feature a black protagonist. And so that's a major part of the reason why I started writing for children in the first place. Your new book, just saying, is different to all of the others. For the first time, you've written a memoir. Mm. The book doesn't run chronologically. Instead, it is your life charted through themes, wonder, loss, anger, perseverance, representation and love. Which of those do you think has been the biggest driver in your life so far? Oh, it's got to be love. It's a love of family. It's a love of books. It's a love of stories. It's a love of storytelling. It's a love of computing at the beginning. It was a love of my hubby. It's a love of writing. It's a love of wanting to connect and communicate with people. It's a love for kind of children and young adults and wanting to communicate with them in particular. So I... I hope that's my motivator and my motivating force. Mallory Blackman, thank you for comforting with me. (laughs) It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) This episode of Comfort Eating was produced by Jack Claremont. The executive producer is Lucy Greenwell. The music was written by Axel Kakutier. Mixing and sound design was by Solomon King. If you like comfort eating, then please go and leave us a review and you can follow or subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And use the hashtag comforteatingpod to get in touch about the podcast or share your own comfort eating delights. This is The Guardian. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice, new research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centred higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.
Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.